With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. A lot of people have an interest or a passion and they'll explore it themselves, but it never turns into anything. You actually did something. You created a website. You kind of recruited other people to help. What do you think was that impetus to do rather than just think, oh, wouldn't this be a neat idea? Adolescent Sphere is mission-driven. We have a mission. We want people to experience that sense of wonder that we crave. Uh, And we have a feeling that it's a good thing and that when people experience it, they recognize it as a good thing. But I think, I feel like you have this talent of actually doing, whereas a lot of people don't do. Well, I mean, I don't do when I have a good idea. I often don't do it. How do you identify an uncomfortable situation? Oh, your body can tell you when you're uncomfortable. Like, let's say right now I I challenged you and said, okay, tomorrow I want to do something that makes me uncomfortable. And as you put it, you put it really well, it starts out as a thread, but I want to follow that thread Mm -hmm. to see how far I can go. And that's the story. At the end is somehow the story or or the process of following that thread to the end is the Mm -hmm. story. So how do I, what's the process of coming up with an uncomfortable situation? I I know know it when I see it, but how do I start seeing it? what What are you curious about? You know, eventually I'm going to die, but what can I do or what can I create in this world that's a location that other people might want to see that's so interesting and, as we keep using the word obscure, but so interesting and obscure that people say, I can't see this anywhere else. I'm going Ooh. to explore this. I love the way you just framed that. I hope all of your listeners will actually take that question and try and come up with an answer to it. So, Josh Fower, you've been on the podcast before. Thanks for coming on again. You were on before for Moonwalking with Einstein, which was an excellent book. Uh, uh, that was a New York Times bestseller, right? Yeah. And uh, it was about how you, at first, were covering the U.S. Memory Championships, and then you decided, like, what the heck? I'm going to become the U.S. Memory Champion. And you did in 2006, and then uh, you wrote about it, and that was the book, was you kind of not only covering this subculture of people obsessed with improving their memories, but you deciding you were going to be the memory champion of the entire country. Why not? Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was the book, and um, it was fun to do that podcast. It's great to be here doing this with you in person because last time we were on the phone and yeah it's now you know fun to be here in person now i do them all in person because i find that um you know people would always like them when when uh i would do them on skype like the last one we did on skype but when you you take that next step in professionalism like improving the audio quality it allows people to say hey not only do i like this but the quality is good enough i'm gonna recommend this to my friend and so i find that the the it's just improve the general downloads and everything of the podcast 
Plus, it's uh, I like the interaction in person. Yeah, it's much better to talk with somebody face to face than yeah. over over a phone. So now you have a new book, Atlas Obscura, right? And I didn't know about this book, but I saw I saw uh, like a few months ago that you were writing this book, Atlas Obscura, and I looked it up, and it seemed totally fascinating to me. And um, I'm going to talk about my own personal experience of actually going doing one of the things in this book. Well, describe what the book is about. Okay, so the book is a guide to the world's hidden wonders. So it's a gigantic... Hidden being the key. Hidden and wondrous being the key. Uh, so it's all the kinds of amazing places that you, like, when you first hear about them, you're like, could that, does that really exist? Is that real? And yes, these places are all real, and we've collected them from all over the world. When you say we, uh, okay. you've built up, like, this huge team around this. Like, it's a, a company, practically. Uh, it, it is, in fact, a company. Uh, yeah. And we start, this started basically as, like, an art project. It was me and uh, my co-founder, Dylan Thuris, wanted to create a resource for people like us out in the world who are looking for, you know, uh, like our favorite kind of museum is the museum that's open from 2 to 3.30 p.m. on Tuesdays and you have to ring a doorbell to get in. Like the secret places. Yeah. Kind of like, you know what, there's like a cool factor to all these places. Like if you are in a city and you happen to know one of the places mentioned in this book and you're taking like a date out to just show up at one of these places, there's a little bit of a cool factor. This is a good book for for finding for finding date spots. But I mean, you know, like tourism and travel has become so homogenized and what do you mean by that? Well, it's like, you know, you, you go, you stay in the same hotels, you eat the same food, uh, you go to sites that have been, you know, TripAdvisor approved, and, like, we wanted to, we're always looking for experiences that feel more real, that tell you something about the world, that are not sort of part of some commodified, packaged experience. And and this book is really trying to collect the kinds of places where you can have those experiences. So So before we get into the kind of, more obscure details of yeah. Atlas Obscura. I want to. I want to. Um, a first, ask you what's the most. What What would you say is like the most outrageous place mentioned in this book? Oh my god, the most outrageous. That's hard. Uh, so there are over seven hundred places in the book, and then there's a lot more on the on your website. Apple, the, Atlas the website is over ten thousand, and uh, they've been submitted by users all over the all over the world. It's like the Wikipedia of obscure places. Exactly, and then this book was like picking the very very best from the website. Um, and I should mention, as we speak, uh, this is ranked in the top ten of all books on Amazon right now. So that's incredible. It's had an amazing usually launch. it's just erotica in the top ten. <laughs> of all. It's erotica now and Atlas Obscura and, and Bill O'Reilly. So yeah, but that's um, uh, I don't know if we'll catch Bill O'Reilly. Well, he I just read he sold two hundred fifty thousand copies of uh, his latest book in in the past week. Well, then let me tell you, we will not catch Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> um, so so yeah, so the most outrageous. Place, I can tell you the most outrageous place I think I've been. Uh, and I, and Dylan and Ella, my the, our other co-author, have tried to visit as many of these places as we can. Obviously, we haven't visited all 700 on all seven continents. But uh, Dylan and I spent a summer traveling around South America, searching out Atlas Obscura spots. And I mean, one of the one of the really terrific ones that we went to was the last Incan grass bridge. The last Incan grass bridge. Right. So, what's like, a grass bridge? Yeah. Okay. So, 500 years ago. Uh, when the first Europeans were arriving in Peru, encountering the Incan Empire, they found these incredible grass suspension bridges all over the Andes. This is how you got got uh, across valleys in the Andes. Remember, uh, Europeans didn't invent suspension bridges until about you know 400 years later, hmm. and these were bigger and spanning greater distances than anything uh, the Spaniards had ever seen. You know, I'm an idiot. Like, define a suspension bridge for me. Okay. So like, you know, not on pilings, but really hung between two cliffs Okay. and, but made 
out of grass. And so are the grass like t- are they like wheat woven together? It's woven each grass. grass like woven to another piece of grass. Yeah, and <clears throat> so at the time these were all over the place and they were incredible. And you know, uh, um, the bridge of, bridges of San Luis Rey is about uh, an Incan grass bridge. There's only one left, and it's in a very remote part of Peru. And Dylan and I went and found it, tracked it down. I mean, it involved like asking lots of people, "Do you know where the grass bridge is? Do you know the, where the grass bridge is?" And this bridge has been maintained for over 500 years, since Incan times. And the way it's maintained is basically every um, couple of years it has to be rebuilt. And so in a way, what makes it permanent is its impermanence, that these three villages that are near the bridge come together. It's a three-day ceremony. They weave a new bridge out of grass. Every, every family has to contribute a certain amount of grass. And... So it's still here, 500 years later. Well, what's interesting there, gosh, I'm going to be in all sorts of tangents, because really what I want to get to is sort of your process of writing these books and the super achievements you've done. But 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 you just made me think, what's interesting about that is not so much the bridge, although that's fascinating also, but the ritualized aspect. Like they get together for a three-day ceremony. Mm-hmm. You know, and in so many of these places that you, that in this, book are not just about the place but about the ritual around them or or the obsessions of the people who create these places and i find that that's it's 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 kind of obsession and ritual create location in a weird way that's that's terrific yeah i mean like one thing that this book is not is a collection of like oddities it's not you know roadside attractions it's not things that are just weird it's things that are or 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 or, or strange it's things that are profoundly strange things whose strangeness tells you something about people and how people work and how the universe works and what motivates people. And like, I mean, it's when you scratch the surface of the stranger, like here's the last Incan grass bridge, you get into a story about tradition and culture and right. So it's like, it's technology. Each place is not about like, oh, go to this longitude and latitude and you're going to see something interesting. Each place is about kind of the story. It's like the top of a pyramid and all the way underneath is the story and the layers of story that create it. Like, um, uh, and I, I I didn't mean to get into like the specific locations until later in the in the interview, but um, tell me about the uh, there was one that fascinated me, and I kept running across that every time I went through the book. the the dollhouse museum where it's all uh, crime like murder crime scenes. It's oh, all like dolls of murder yeah, crime the, scenes. The, the 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 nutshell nutshell studies of 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 uh, unexplained death, I think is what it's yeah. called. Um, it's in Baltimore. And these were created. I'm definitely visiting this place. Yeah. Uh, it's so, like the Dexter of dollhouses. Well, there were these little dollhouse scenes that were created for forensic detectives to train themselves. Because, right? you, you know, it's not like you have murder crime scenes all the time that uh, somebody can go and learn the ropes of how to become a forensic detective by just going from crime scene to crime scene. These uh, really intricate dioramas were, and their miniature were created, and they've got little clues hidden all over them about what might have caused. You know, like the, the blood spatter is where just the blo- exact. exactly, or you know, the placement of the the wrench, and um, and and so detectives would use these to train themselves to study crime scenes and try and understand how they work and what what are the details to pay attention to, and and now they're actually uh, kind of have become this beautiful work of art. Uh, I mean, they were created quite a while ago. I mean, just the photos you take took it looked like a beautiful work of art, and I can imagine. Um, just, I mean, how many of the, how many of these scenes are there? How many dolls were I'm made? I'm not sure, actually, how many Is there it are. Is like in the hundreds? A, I don't know if it's in the hundreds, but I think it's, you know, maybe a dozen. 
And and who made it? Who thought like, oh, I'm gonna make dolls of blood of murder scenes? Right. No, I mean this this. Uh, I'm trying to remember the, the story. There's 700 places in the book. I I, I don't remember all of the details, but. Uh, uh, I'm sorry that like that one in particular like stood <laughs> out because literally every time I opened the book somehow it fell. It's to a that jarring page. image, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it was. Uh, I believe she was commissioned um, to create these four. I think it was the Baltimore Police Department. They're certainly in Baltimore today, and it's open to the public to see it. I think my recollection of trying to go see it, I haven't actually seen them myself. Uh, I remember having to call somebody to try and get in, and I wasn't able to get in at the time that I wanted to get in. So I actually haven't seen them myself. But I know one of my co-authors has. Okay, so it is seeable if you work it out. And every place in the book, uh, I mean, some of them are, seem quite inaccessible. Every place in the book, theoretically, well, except for the places that are, you know, a mile underground, uh, can can be basically be visited. Well, I'm going to ask you about the mile underground, but first, I'm going to I'm going to challenge you a little bit. There's the CIA museum. Is that yeah, accessible so you need, to the public? Well, <laughs> you may need to know somebody. to What get is into the that. CIA museum? So in Langley, um, the CIA actually keeps a collection of. Sort of their greatest, their greatest treasures. Some of which are, you can imagine, uh, still uh, quite uh, matters of national security. Like Bin Laden's beard is that there? <laughs> I don't know if Bin Laden's beard is there, but that's the kind of thing that they that they hold on to, you know. Uh, and typically, it's only accessible to people with the appropriate CIA clearance. And is there any way, like? If you and I were to go there and say, "Hey, we're doing research. Like, can we come see it?" You th- you Here's, think the thing. Like- Here's the thing I've discovered. Uh-huh. Like, most of the time when something is quote-unquote off-limits or inaccessible, it really isn't if you tell the right story and you approach it in the right way with, like, the right spirit and enthusiasm to the person who holds the key, who, you know, to whatever the place is. Um, I mean, I, I say that as a journalist and being just, you know, well, saying I'm a journalist opens a lot of doors sometimes. I'll, sometimes it closes doors. But in my experience, if you, like, if you don't take no for an answer on the first time and you just ask in the right way, you can often get in to places that you wouldn't think a normal civilian would be able to get into. Like, what well, what are some techniques you use to get... I mean, because this applies to anything. Like, I don't want to have access to anything, like a, like a fashion show or a movie opening or one of these museums or one of these, you know, obscure places you I, mentioned. I remember I was passing through New Orleans a few years ago and uh, I think it was Tulane University has a wonderful collection of medical oddities basically like what oh like um you know fetuses in jars and that sort of thing and it's like sort of a uh, morbid collection of stuff and it's in like the second floor of a building that is not open to the public it's for medical students to to study and actually probably hasn't even really been useful for like you know a hundred years but they hang on to this stuff anyways and i remember i i i, I found out about this and it wasn't open to the public and i like i Sent an email. I called and I said, "Like, look, I'm like, I love this stuff. I'm really enthusiastic about it. I'm gonna be in New Orleans. Would you mind if I just popped by and saw it?" And like, by the way, this I think I was, you know, 20, 21 years old at the time. So I said, I'm a student, and they said, "Sure, but just don't take any pictures." And so I got in. And I got to see that. And oftentimes, if do you, you ever like sneak pictures? Like, uh, no, you know. Um, Little little yeah. pen camera like James Bond. We try with Atlas Obscure. We're trying to be respectful of these places, and you know, we want them to thrive, and we want um, to. We consider all of these places like uh, our, our partners. You know, there are. Um, I mean, they benefit from it. Well, some people would say, "Look, you know, you're you're shining a light on all these obscure places. Like, aren't you worried you're going to ruin them by like making them well known?" 
and that was a concern that we had when we launched the website and then you know subsequently with the book. And in the seven years that we've been running Atlas Obscura, we've seen a lot of places in the Atlas disappear, close down, go out of business. And they don't disappear because they're overloved. They disappear because they're underloved. And so we want to celebrate these places, get people out, seeing them, exploring them, and hopefully keeping them around uh, so that they can be available for all of us. So, so uh, again, I want to get into kind of your process and how you put this together, but I just want to tell you one story. I uh, A few weekends ago, after I got the book, I um, was looking at places, obviously, in New York City, and I saw the museum mm-hmm. that got a couple M's on both sides, mm-hmm. and it's like basically the smallest museum of New York City, if not the country for all I know. And I decided I'm going to take my kids to it. And it's not so far from where I live. And we're, I, I kind of took an obscure way to get there, like going through all these back alleys in Chinatown. And they're like, Daddy, where are you taking us? And I'm like, don't worry, don't worry. And we get to this alley in, you know, basically between Chinatown and Federal, you know, the, the City Hall area. And there's a woman sitting across the street. And it's basically, like you say, it's in this, it's it's this museum entirely in this elevator room. And it was fascinating, the objects in this one room little museum. And there were people there. And my kids spent, we spent like 20, 30 minutes like looking at each exhibit. Like there was one exhibit of pictures of final text messages. So fi- the final text oh, messages wow. people got before somebody, else, the, the person texting yeah. them died. And uh, it was a, such an interesting, that was one of the exhibits. There were, uh, there were other exhibits in there, but all within this one little elevator. And there was like maybe a dozen people checking things out and people coming and going. And my kids were fascinated by it. Like, what a great experience to give to them. So, you know, one of the ideas behind Atlas Obscura is like, we can all be explorers. We don't have to go off to, you know, the Amazon or climb Mount Everest to find wonder all around us. And in compiling the book, one of the things we wanted to do is we knew we were going to have readers in uh, all over the world, but especially in the United States and major cities opening up this book. And we wanted to make sure that they were also surprised. That, like, if you were a New Yorker opening the book, you'd be like, oh, my God, I didn't know these things existed in New York City. Yeah, it's funny. I would say, you know, so you do cover basically the entire world, and New York City is only um, it's only page three fifty nine. I remember uh, alas, the page number. Alas, in the scheme of the world, New York City is still only one city out of <laughs> out of out of hundreds. Page three fifty nine out of whatever four hundred seventy pages. But um, uh, I knew about one third of the places, and maybe I've been. To, you're a pretty curious guy. Yeah, so. and also I've been all over. I've I'm. Um, and I feel like I'm an explorer too. Like I like to find the obscure oddities in, in the places where I live. So I like this idea that anybody could be an explorer and, and you almost having, having the heart and mind of an explorer keeps life interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that must've been your original appeal to, to doing this. Like why, why did you start doing this? No, that is the idea is like, we, we all explore life. Otherwise it's boring. That's right. And, and, and what Atlas Obscure is about is like helping people put on a pair of glasses that makes them look at the world a little bit differently and see the possibilities that are around them that they might otherwise uh, not know about, they might walk past. I mean, do you know that we are just a couple blocks away from a place called the Earth Room? You ever been to the Earth Room? I haven't been to the Earth Room. Okay, so it's, it's maybe four blocks from here. You ring a buzzer, you go up to this, I think it's the third floor, and it's a room filled uh, three feet deep with earth in the middle of Soho, dirt. It's been there since like the 70s. 
And I guarantee you, you've walked past it a million times. And we want to encourage people to press that button. You how, know? How do, why did that guy do that? Why did that guy... Put- it's, it's, a, it's actually a notable uh, uh, work of, uh, of, of, of art by Walter de Maria, who's a famous land artist and... Um, from from the seventies, and it's you know it's, it's just been there waiting for people to to ring that bell. Does he grow anything in the dirt? No, it's just dirt, just dirt. So, and it's in an apartment he owns. It's not. I mean, it's in a studio. A studio. Uh, it has to be watered regularly, and when you walk in, you smell. Why does it have dirt. to be watered? Why does dirt have to be watered? Maybe to keep it from like getting dusty. Just, I don't know, uh-huh. <laughs> but I think then it may actually just be part of the part of the the, the art. You know, no, actually, from from where we're sitting right now, um, if, if I when I was going down the list of places in New York City, there's quite a few places like within let's say a mile radius of here. And if you go on the website, especially if you're on a mobile phone, there's a what's near me, and you know, hopefully, wherever you are in the world, and you, when you click what's near me on atlasobscure.com, you will find something that will surprise you and delight you, and make you. Cool. Well, and and well, and expand your sense of what is possible in the world, which is really what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and it makes you think too. What can I do to you know? Eventually, I'm going to die, but what can I do, or what can I create in this world? That's a location that other people might want to see. That's so interesting, and as we keep using the word obscure, but so interesting and obscure that people say, "I can't see this anywhere else. I'm going Ooh. to explore this." I love the way you just framed that. I hope all of your listeners will actually take that question and try and come up with an answer to it. Yeah, because it's, it's a challenge not only to find places but to create a place. Yeah, and if and if everybody thought about things that way, what an interesting world we would live in. Yeah. So I want to I want to take a step back and and look at your process because obviously you're a super successful author, but you have a, a particular thing. It's not just you writing about these topics. And in fact, I would argue this book is more designed and researched than written. It's it's an idea that that. I mean, this is like almost like a sculpture. The way you've done this book, it's a, it's a nice. You you can't. I wouldn't recommend people get this on Kindle. Like you have to get the book. It's uh, a beautiful looking yes, book. Yes, don't get it on Kindle. Buy the hardcover. <laughs> yeah, and um, um, but but then also with Moonwalking with Einstein, it's not like oh, I'm going to write a book about. Either, you could have gone three different ways with that book, and you chose the correct way. I think you could have said, oh, I'm going to write about this weird little subculture of people who are obsessed with memory and and compete in these memory championships, or you could have written. A how-to. Here's how you become, you know, the U.S. memory champion, and you could have interviewed a lot of people and had all the exercises and so on. But instead, you threw yourself into the experience, so you became the U.S. memory champion, and you document that along the way. And ultimately, that's what makes it a page turner and such um, a best-selling and evergreen book. I mean, it's a good book to read right now, ten years later, or you know, ten years after the experience. So, so, and just like with this, you throw that yourself into the experience. You built a company around this idea. You have an entire team of people submitting obscure places to you. You've been to many of these places. And I know from what we've talked about with your next book, Hunters and Gatherers, you've lived in the Congo exploring the last tribe of hunters and gatherers. You don't just write about them. You experience these things. And so how would you? How did you kind of cultivate this process or say to yourself, okay, this is the kind of writer I'm going to be? And then, and then when do you have the time to write? You're doing all this uh, you're, well, yeah, you're becoming the question. U.S. memory champion. When did you write? Right. Um, so I, the the experience that made me the made me a journalist and made me the kind of journalist that I have become, or the kind of wh- whatever it is that I am. But you're like an independent journalist. It's not like you're a reporter anywhere. No, that's true. I don't I don't uh, work for any particular magazine, and um, uh, I would like to 
I've tried to set up my life so that I can explore the things that I'm curious about and really go deep into them and sometimes, you know, get in over my head, which is really what happened with the memory contest, you know. Um, Literally. Yeah, I mean, I did not expect that the outcome of that process of exploring this world and becoming curious about it was going to be that I was going to become the U.S. memory champion. That was not, um, when I set out on day one, what I thought was going to happen. But that's like, if my... Basically, I I want to just keep pulling at the thread until I figure out where 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 it ends or where it takes me, um, and that all my process started I guess in college. I spent a summer. I bought an old minivan uh, and drew, spent two months driving all over the country. Basically, my mission was to have an interesting experience every day that I could then write about. Okay, and, so so let's talk about that for a second. So yeah. you had a mission. Yeah. So part part of exploring is to have a mission. It might I really change. I think so. Yeah. So I'm gonna write that down. Hold on. Mission and and so your mission in this case was to have an interesting experience every day. Right. I sort of feel you still do that, but just not with a van. Right. Yeah. And um, and I think it's a good mission. Uh, and and that experience, I was like, I you know, I went and I I went to Bob Jones University, which is the the famous. Evangelical college in 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 South Carolina that had banned interracial dating until like three three years before I arrived, and I told them that I was interested in transferring. And so they put me up in the dorms, and I did you write about that? I think I, when I was twenty years old, yeah. Um, I mean, this was like this was my uh, this was the set of experiences that set me on the path that I'm on today, and. I feel like uh, I feel like you wrote about it, and that was like a known article. Did I read that I from you or from I somewhere think else? So I don't think I ever okay. published it. I mean, I, I did write, but I don't think I published it. Anyways, I spent I spent uh, eight weeks going all over the country doing that, and I just that fell in love with that process of trying to like put myself into uncomfortable situations, figure them out, and come out of it with a story that I could tell. And if you know that, like, I don't know, how, how do you identify an uncomfortable situation? Oh, your body can tell you when you're uncomfortable. But like, let's say right now, I I challenged you and said, okay, tomorrow I want to do something that makes me uncomfortable. And as you put it, you put it really well. It's a starts out as a thread, but I want to follow that thread mm-hmm. to see how far I can go. And that's the story. At the end is somehow the story, or or the process of following that thread to the end is the mm-hmm. story. So how do I? What's the process of coming up with an uncomfortable situation? I, I know, know what, it when I see it, but how well, do I start it's seeing something, it? What are you What are you curious about? I don't know. I guess I mean like what were I guess you have to have uh, a way of cultivating that curiosity. Like you were curious about going to the Bob Jones University. Like how right. did you get curious about that? Cuz I read an article but I couldn't believe this place existed. <laughs> so so kind of like reading a lot, yeah. uh, you know, about where would you read stuff? Well, on Atlas Obscura. I mean like seriously, <laughs> part of what we, the reason that that Dylan and I created Atlas Obscura was um to be like a place that would collect this kind of um the, the kinds of things that would spur us to get out in the world and explore. So, you right. know, so, I'll, so I'll give you an example. Yeah. So that museum I went to with my kids, the small museum, there was one exhibit of the guy um, who's made like 3,400 patents. Do you, know, do you know that guy's name? The no, Japanese scientist? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And yes. he, was, he was having his what birthday. Is his uh, he's having a birthday party tonight, by oh, the way, okay. at that museum. And unfortunately, I'm going out of town. Otherwise, I would have gone to it. But, um, uh, but I could see potentially... That's something that makes me curious. Following that guy around, or exploring his story, and seeing what he does next, or going to his birthday party. So you could see that there's lots of almost 
clues in this book to lead you to other interesting experiences. And that is what we hope will happen. Our hope is that this book and the website will be a guide to people who want to have those kinds of experiences and, 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 and like a spur to say, you know what? Like this is available to you. This is you don't even have to get on a plane and go somewhere. This like these this kind of experience is, is all around us if you're oh. just willing to get off your butt and go make yourself uncomfortable. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. 
So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Let's brainstorm for a second. Let's say I live in, I don't know, Cincinnati, Ohio, or Kansas City, just someplace in the, in the like New York City, of like like you mentioned, three blocks away, there's somebody who has three feet of dirt in his house. Like, that doesn't happen in most towns. Oh, but it does. That's the incredible thing. Oh, but it does. Like, you know, uh, you're going to Kansas. I would recommend you check out uh, Layla Cahoon's Hair Museum. There's a woman who collects uh, 19th century Victorian hair art. Hair art? What's hair art? Well, in Victorian times, one of the ways that you uh, commemorated or me- remembered somebody that you loved was to make uh, like a, a brooch or a necklace or a bracelet out of their hair. Um, and so she had this woman has collected all of these and, and, and now uh, has them on display. It's so funny because it reminds me of um, I, um, I was walking in Tribeca the other day and there was a place called Soho Photo. And the place itself was seemed almost uninteresting. Like there was 
photo exhibits, whatever, in like a lot of places. But then you go to the bathroom and in the bathroom was what they call their family photo collection. And it was photos they had picked up from yard sales over the years of basically these, from from 1900 to now, photos of people getting married that they picked up at yard sales. And it was just covering this bathroom. So it was essentially the most interesting bathroom I've seen in New York City. I should submit it to Alice Obscura. You absolutely should. (laughs) You absolutely should. That's exactly the kind of thing that we'd have in Alice And so potentially, uh, like an experience there is I could go and interview what happened to many of these couples that are now they're memorialized in this bathroom right i want that i mean yeah it could be fun so so but in but but i like the word uncomfortable though that's not necessarily that's curious but it's not necessarily uncomfortable so so what's what's something that makes you uncomfortable that you could potentially start researching tomorrow how do again i want to figure out for for someone listening they wake up they have their normal nine to five job, but they're going to say, you know what, I'm going to do something uncomfortable today and maybe even journal about it or document it, not necessarily be a reporter or write a book about it, but do something that makes myself or go somewhere that where I'm uncomfortable. How can they start to figure that out? All right, so here's like a, a fun assignment uh, for your next next time you've got, let's say you've got a four-day weekend. Yeah. All right, you got a four-day weekend. Um, you have $100 in your pocket. How far can you get? Yeah. And that's uncomfortable. Yeah. Right? Um, and I get a friend and see who can get farther. Yeah. That's Make interesting. Make a competition. Make a bet. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that's interesting. What's a, I'm pushing you. What's another one? <sighs> okay. Um, Just like what would you do? Like tomorrow you wake up and someone says, Josh, do something uncomfortable that potentially you're going to journal about or tell a story about later. Okay. Uh, what would I like to do? Um, like what's your interest? That you would that would you could take your interest from interest to uncomfortable, right? Well, so I mean, obviously, what I spent the last four years doing, which is living in the middle of the rainforest in the Congo with uh, Mbengeli pygmies, who are the largest remaining group of hunter gatherers on the planet, that's has been pretty uncomfortable, um, and I've learned a lot from that discomfort from being with people who think about the world entirely differently and live entirely differently. From from were you ever in danger? <sighs> I mean, it's all relative, but I've never really felt scared over there. I'm with people who are experts at living in the forest. Yeah. And, you know, they'll let me know when I need to be scared. But it's still uncomfortable. You're in the middle of a totally unique environment, the last tribe of hunter-gatherers in the world. Yeah, not not the last tribe, but the largest remaining tribe. There, there, there are hunter-gatherers in, um, in a number of places still left on, on the planet. So again, Kansas City, you wake up. And right. you want to get uncomfortable. Yeah, I'll tell you because here's one that I, that I, I once did. Uh, you go down to a uh, temporary work center, a temp center, where people are lining up to, uh, to to get you know minimum wage jobs. Go go do that for a day. Yeah, go talk to the people who do that every day. Um, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, and you will learn a lot. Um. It's amazing how many people actually don't do stuff like that because they do their nine to five thing and they figure, okay, the weekends or the four day weekends, I need to just sit around and relax and cool down. But sometimes something like that, rather than relaxing, gives you, if you do something that's out of your comfort zone, it gives you this incredible energy. Right. Totally. And it's exciting to do. And by the way, you'll have something to talk about, uh, you know. Forever. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So, so, so a lot of that is like you basically probably have done this many times, but then you took the most incredible experiences like obviously winning the u.s memory championships and then doing atlas obscura and then these become not only just stories you talk about but they become books 
And and not only that, they're 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 page turning books. Like the the U.S. Memory Championships, that was you you took us on a ride there. Like that was a a thriller. You know, it was a, it was a sp- suspenseful book. Are you gonna you know you were gonna give up? Or you were, you also had it was a how to like you showed us about the Memory Palace and all that. And then you win. And so so what's your process then of of writing like how did you know to basically take this experience and and turn it into a page turner that's the, the part that's really hard for me at least i mean i think there are people who find writing easy i find it incredibly hard um because you've now once you now have this experience how do you make it interesting to other people and uh, tell it as a story that has all the elements that you just described which are not necessarily inherent or obvious in the story but have to be kind of pulled out and 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 sculpted so that the reader is carried along and feels propelled. Particularly when there's so many more demands on their attention now in, in these days. I mean, Netflix is going to spend $6 billion on original programming. So that's going to require time from people to absorb. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's tons of blogs, news articles, Not Instagram. Not to mention podcasts. Podcasts, books. You know, it's it's. I'm definitely aware of doing a podcast how many hours a week I expect of someone's time. It's right. why I don't do more than, at the moment, more than one episode a week because you can't expect too much. You can't, not, not, and this is not saying anything bad about people in general, but there's a lot of demands on people's time and you can't ask for too much. You have to be respectful of it. So, so when you're writing a book, you have to say, how am I going to get someone to the next page? Right. That's right. And, and how do you do it? And how do you do it? Um, I think you are, um, posing questions, not even necessarily explicitly, uh, you, can, you can pose them implicitly, that the reader wants to know the answer to. Like, what do you mean by implicitly? Uh, you can set up something that doesn't quite make sense and where the reader can start thinking, like, well, how is that going to resolve or how is that... Um, so, for instance, you could, like, close a chapter in, in the memory book, the Moonwalking with Einstein book. You close a chapter, like, my next challenge was well, that's memorizing 200 pages it. in a row. Yeah, I mean, that's a way of explicitly doing it. But you can also, um, you know, you, you, you tease something. There's something that, like, you, you, you mention even offhandedly that, like, the reader reads it and says, like, hmm... That's going to go somewhere, and maybe it doesn't go in the direction that they think it's going to go. But you've you've set something up that you can resolve later. And if you if you kind of um, if you can strip tease the information in in the right order, you can keep people you know uh, keep people with you wanting to find out you know <laughs> where it all well, ends. Strip tease is an interesting word, meaning that you um, you kind of know the whole. Uh, the end point, but you're not going to give it to them so quickly. Well, you're going to kind of unravel it. Yeah, and I mean, I so part of the 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 hard part of of the kind of writing that I do is knowing I know the whole story, right? But I need to. You don't know the story, and I need to reveal the story to you, um, detail by detail by detail, in a way that like I don't want to tell you the, how it's going to end up front, and I want to make sure that I'm telling you just enough that you want to keep going. And I, I feel the best nonfiction writers, like let's say you, Malcolm Gladwell, the f- guys who wrote Freakonomics, AJ Jacobs, you know, many of these people actually have been on the on the podcast. I feel they do it. I feel, uh, and I feel also, of course, the best fiction writers do it because that's their game is to have cliffhangers as much as possible. But why do you think most nonfiction writers don't do it? Like I feel most nonfiction writers fail at this part. Hmm. That's hard. I mean... And uh, like they know their information, 
but they don't necessarily know how to how to strip tease it. Uh huh. Yeah, and well, it's also like if you're an academic, you that's that is not the way an academic structures um, his writing that he's doing for his academic audience. Right. Uh, it's in fact the inverse of that. Right. You you start with the results, and and then you then you get into your methodology, and then. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that academics sometimes have trouble transitioning to writing for more popular audiences. And even they're even looked down upon within academia when they try to popularize their work sometimes. Which is just ridiculous and um, of course. And, and absurd. Yeah. But but I think it is sometimes true. So so um when you when you left Moonwalking with Einstein, so you had that experience, you wrote about it. I think it's even being optioned for a movie now, correct? Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's actually going to be turned into a movie, but, you know. It's an interesting story. One can, one Let me hope. know when the option runs out, right. I'll buy it. <laughs> okay. Um, and then, how did you start to get into this Atlas Obscura? So, really, this started as, like, a side project. Like, basically, like, an art project. Me and Dylan were like, you know, this thing should exist, and let's make it exist. And we put it out there. It was a um, pretty simple website when we launched. And people started contributing places from all over the world, and the community kind of grew up around it. So... Over time, what had been a kind of side project uh, turned into a business, and we were able to start hiring people. We started to have advertisers coming to us and saying, hey, you know, you've got, like, uh, relatively young people who are out exploring the world. That's kind of interesting. We'd like to advertise with you. And now it's become this kind of, like, snowball. It's rolling down the hill, and it keeps we keep picking up new things, and it gets bigger. We do now events in seven cities around the country every weekend. You should do, like, flash events, too. Like, hey, everybody in New York, we're going to show up at, you know, this back room speakeasy bar. That's kind of what we do. Um, that is kind of what we do. And we do it, so in New York, Philly, San Francisco, L.A., D.C., Chicago, soon Boston, and I think we just launched in Seattle as well. What's the what's the business model behind doing those events? Uh, well, it, first of all, they're great fun. Um, people pay for tickets. Okay. Uh, and we have people in each of those cities who are, organizing those events who are getting paid to organize them. This is, what's what's really remarkable about this, and I'm kind of just impressed in a variety of ways, Not because I, I realized initially I was impressed from a writing perspective, but now from a business perspective, you basically took what was a passion of yours doing this art project, and, and not the passion of your life, I'm sure you've been passionate about many things, but you took this passion and somehow... Um, alongside all of your other stuff, you planted enough seeds where you saw this was growing and it became a business. Like suddenly, naturally, it became a business. You didn't have to force it into a business. Like people started calling you to advertise. And is this now like your business? Are you going to build this for a long time? Yeah, I mean, so we're going to hopefully turn this into the defining uh, media enterprise around the themes of wonder and curiosity and exploration for... For our generation, that's that's our ambition. Uh, in the same way that National Geographic defined those values uh, for the 20th century, we would like to, when you think about the world as an incredible place, we want you to think about Atlas Obscura and to experience that through Atlas Obscura. You should, like I noticed you have um, on the site, you list kind of a few, quite a few employees. Like what's, if you don't mind saying, what's the current revenues of the business roughly? One second. Um, I will... Uh, not answer that directly, except to say that we've got eight, we got eighteen full time employees, um, and uh, we're making it work as a business. And you haven't raised any money? No, we have raised some money from venture capitalists. From yeah, and some some media investors. Yeah, you know what you should do? You should um, 
uh, reward people who donate a lot of places. You should make people like real explorers. Like we're working you on know, all star explorers. We're and working have different on levels. Yeah, and you you can see your rankings now of you know like oh really how many put like you could be the the most curious person in New York City if you have been to well we have over three hundred places in New York City in the Atlas, um, and I don't know anybody who's been to all three hundred. Because think think about it. Yeah, well, that's an interesting way of ranking too. Like who's been to each place mm-hmm. and and proven it, like taking a photo of each place. Like if you think about it, ranking systems work. We're 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 tribal creatures. So when we find a tribe we want to belong to, we want to be the alphas and not the omegas. Mm-hmm. And so so ranking works. Like you look at you know Quora has the top Quora writers. Foursquare had the mayors of each you know place. So you should have something similar for for this. Yeah, and I mean one of the cool things is like we've created these communities in these cities of people who really do see the world in this way and 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 and. Um, are constantly prodding themselves to explore and find new things and create ways for them to interact with each other. And that's been tremendously gratifying to have people who are actually out in the world doing things because of Atlas Obscura. So so there's a couple of interesting things to, to point out here. One is a lot of people have an interest or a passion and they'll explore it themselves, but it never turns into anything. You actually did something. You created a website, you kind of recruited other people to help. What do you think was that impetus to do rather than just think, oh, wouldn't this be a neat idea? Well, Atlas Obscure is driven, like, it's it's mission-driven. We have a mission. We want people to experience that sense of wonder that we crave. Uh, and we have a feeling that it's a good thing and that when people experience it, they recognize it as a good thing. But I think, I feel like you have this talent of actually doing, whereas a lot of people don't do. Well, I mean, I don't do when I have a good idea. I often don't do it. I'll tell you, in all the projects I've worked on, I've been extremely lucky to have great partners. And um, so that's key. Yeah, find, uh, uh, finding people who can who can execute. So my co-founder, Dylan Thuris, is, is a fantastic human being. Uh, two years ago, we hired a CEO for, for Atlas Obscure named David Plotz, who's a fantastic executive. And, you know, we built a team of people who can actually realize this mission and realize this idea in the world. And even with even with moonwalking with Einstein, it's not like you did it by yourself. Like you had all these other memory experts that you would consult. You you would call up Anders Ericsson, an expert on peak performance and memory, who you would consult. So you kind of you kind of build when you have a mission that you're going uh, to to get you from just thinking about it, like when you wake up in the morning to actually doing it. You sort it seems like you build your your virtual or real team around it to help you do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think once you can once you can see what this thing is going to be. Then you can convince other people to see it, and you can rally a team around it, and you can get people, you know, um, directed towards a goal. That's really fun. So, so I want to ask you about some of the places in the book. Some of yeah. them you might know about because it's in the book. Yeah. Others you might not know about. Some because... of them I maybe have been to. Probably most of them I have not. Um, there's there's so many places in the book, and some of them are so obscure. I doubt you've been to all of them. But I wanted to ask you about this uh, Karasta Prison Hotel. So this was a prison that's now a hotel where they actually subject you to. It's immersive, so they actually subject you to interrogations and all this sort of stuff. Right, because why not? <laughs> I've never stayed at a hotel that was like a kind of a theatrical experience as well. Yeah, well, you know, we could like we could there could be a whole Atlas Obscura book on uh, the craziest places you could be staying. Uh, in in the world, you mentioned a couple of them. There are a couple. We, in, one of the things one in Finland you have it's like all snow or ice. There's or some ice hotels. Sure, there are um, some some really fun treehouse hotels. Uh, it could almost be its own <laughs> guide, uh, and maybe one day it will be. Yeah, yeah. You should divide this up and put like okay, the most me the hundred most amazing hotels, the mo- hundred most obscure hotels in the world. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll do that. 
Um, but you know, in terms of uh, curating the book, we wanted to have a few of of, of every different kind of, of of wonder. So you know, we didn't want to have too many anatomical museums. We didn't want to have too many uh, strange collections. We didn't want to have too many natural wonders. We didn't want to have too many uh, you know. Uh, uh, unusual places to stay. So that's part of the process too. You had to decide like you're going to diversify across all the ways people could explore. Right, and we also wanted to cover the whole world. So, you know, you, we kind of had to have something from everywhere and that was a, a bit of a balancing act figuring out what kind of places to have from each Okay, from each th- spot. Yeah. This next place was fascinating. The Turda salt mine where, what is it, you go like a mile, like it was a salt mine in the uh, in the Roman Empire? Yeah, for like thousands of years. And now it's an amusement park. Uh, At the deep, bottom. Deep, deep, deep underground. Yeah. Who, how do you get there? Like an elevator? I believe so. And, it, you know, it's one of the, it's now, I mean, it's it's funny. You mention it because it seems so extraordinary. It's actually one of the probably least obscure places in the book to the people who live nearby. I mean, so people in, in Romania, it's become actually a big tourist destination in Romania, even though us here in New York have no idea. And, like, you see pictures of it, and it's absolutely stunning. You can't believe this exists on planet Earth. This, like, crazy... I can't even when I look at the this bottom picture, of, a, of a you know thousands thousands of feet down. I can't even understand what I'm looking at when I look at the photo. It's like from another planet. Yeah, and yet no, it's right here on planet Earth with us. So so it was a salt mine basically where Romans would get salt for a thousand years, and then somehow or other, some guy decided. How did they decide to make this amusement park at the bottom? Right. Well, because like uh, clearly somebody had this vision of like how amazing would this be. To bring people down here and like give them this set of experiences in this most improbable of places that's like physically stunning and you know, stunning and created by man, right? I mean, it's a mine. It's a mine, or it started as a mine. How, how would they even build like the amusement park down here? I, that I couldn't tell you. I, a, a lot of pulleys is my guess. Wow. So okay, again, I'd like to know all the most obscure amusement parks out there. Yeah, that is, could be its own. This <laughs> is certainly one of them. Yeah. Um, oh, this was so fascinating. Um, does this still exist, this place? The Kingdom the Kingdom, the kingdom of, of women. women. Right. Uh, so one of the funny things that happens in Atlas Obscura is, and, and when we started the site, we weren't sure, like, were we going to get faked, right? Are, are right. people going to submit stuff? Like, this almost sounds fake. To, so the Des- first time des- I read describe it. Describe this place. Okay. This is, a, this is an area in China where that is um, essentially a, 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 a matriarchy. Um, uh, you've got... Uh, uh, Polyandry, so um, a, a woman can have multiple husbands. Um, Does that exist anywhere else in the world? A place where women can have multiple husbands? This is the most famous example. And when it was first submitted to Atlas Obscura, it was submitted by some user. I remember reading it. I'd be like, I don't think that like that sounds like BS. I mean, uh, the, the all just is this really? Is this like some you know anthropologist kind of like? Uh, imagination running wild is this is this actually real it is real um and so i can visit there right now and there's all these women walking around who basically kind of rule the the kingdom right (laughs) and but but from the age of 13 on they they're women and men can visit them right they don't know who the father is if they have babies right so this exists yes this exists on planet earth with us and you could be on a plane you could be there and you know, eighteen hours from now. And can you become a citizen of this kingdom? No, oh, it's not. It's not actually a kingdom. <laughs> it's a. It's, it's a region. Um, it's like China allows this to exist, or wherever this is. I don't even. Yeah, know. it's in. It's in pretty pretty r- a rural part of China. Um, yeah, and so that's like part of what the book is about. Is like we want you to 
have a sense of just how much possibility there is in the world that these places exist and exist today, and um, you know that and they're and they're sharing this planet with us. And I don't. I, it would be amazing to like talk to some of these women and like feel what their experience is like from from beginning to end, really, and how their experience is different from women who live here, for instance. Yeah, you know, that, this would be a good one to to blow out into a longer article. Uh, so and, many of these places. So part of what we're doing here is, you know, you, we we tried to cram over seven hundred places into a into a book that you know could actually be bought for an affordable price. This is going for something like twenty one bucks on Amazon right now. Thirty five bucks is the hardcover price. The the uh, suggested retail price, you know, we had to make choices and we had to we had to be brief. But many of these places could be, you know, whole books in themselves. I mean, just as an example, and I don't want to talk about this place. People can read about it when they buy the book. But right above the Kingdom of Women yeah. is the Dwarf Empire. Right. So I'll leave that to okay, the imagination yeah. of the the reader because there's more more places. These um, giant Buddha statues of Asia, and you have you have all these Buddha statues, and then this tiny thing to the right is the Statue of Liberty, right, and, like, and it's oh, all drawn to scale. <laughs> I get it now. These things are really, really big, like this biggest Buddha. Have you ever visited it? No, no. And I don't even. What, what is the total height? It's like over six hundred, four hundred twenty feet, or no, five hundred and two feet. And the Statue of Liberty. I didn't realize this is only one hundred and fifty-one feet. I guess. Oh so. no, three hundred twenty-five feet. Is that, maybe that's feet. with the pedestal. I don't know. Yeah, three hundred twenty-five feet versus five hundred and two feet. So that's a pretty big Buddha. But there's a whole bunch of these Buddhas right, that are bigger big, than the big Buddhas are a thing in all over Asia. Uh, and so we try so to collect funny, the biggest seems, of them. It seems antithetical to what Buddha would have wanted. Like, you know, Buddha probably wouldn't have wanted these five hundred foot statues of him. Himself. Isn't that kind of how religion goes, though? It's not always uh, what right. the founder had in mind. Right. Exactly. So, so that's interesting. And you list all of them and where where they are. I've got a bunch of other places. We're just going to keep uh, quickly going through them. So sometimes I have these notes. I just have a piece of paper on each page, but each p- place on the page is interesting. So I have to figure out what I <laughs> which intended. one you're okay good. So so if people make jokes about this. Where do where does all the unclaimed luggage go? You found the place. In fact, I've I've been there. Yeah, it's uh, pretty fun. Basically, it's in northeastern Alabama, and the unclaimed baggage center. Right, because it's got to go somewhere. And so all the airlines send whatever is unclaimed to this giant warehouse. It's basically like a humongous thrift store. Uh, Why don't they put everything up on eBay? They may be starting to do that at this point. Okay. I don't know. Uh, and, you know, it's all sorts of weird stuff, right? Obviously a lot of clothes, a lot of, you know, bathing suits are the kinds of things people leave in their, uh, lose in their luggage. But also like, you know film props and, you know, weird pieces of technology because everything ultimately is that gets around this country is going going on a plane. Where what's the weirdest thing you saw there? Oh, so there's a film a film prop um uh from the the name of the movie is eluding me. I actually haven't seen the movie. Uh it, it, if you if you've got the book in front of you, it'll it's it's in the book. Labyrinth. Right. Uh, right, it's from Labyrinth. It's but what's the name of the character? Um Hoggle the curmudgeonly dwarf puppet. Right. So he's there and he just got like left in somebody's luggage and they decided actually not to sell him but to put him on display. There's a little museum area where they've cordoned off kind of the the stuff that was too good to resell. And where in Alabama is this? It's um near Huntsville. What Tuscaloosa is the Oh, Scottsboro. Scottsboro, yeah. So interesting. All right, uh on to the next one cuz we're, and we're passing we're passing the crypt of Civilization, the, the old prison rodeo. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we're going to. Oh, well, you already spoke about the CIA museum. Um, so I'll go to the next one. Um, oh, and we already spoke about the nutshell studies of unexplained death. By the way, that picture is just disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> and those are dolls. 
Those are those are little mini mini dolls. Yeah. So I'm looking at a doll of like um, a woman who's been murdered, and there's blood coming. She's on the bed. So there's blood coming out of her mouth and on her near her back, and then there's another murdered person on kind of a futon next to her. So have you figured out who who who, who did it yet? My guess is the guy on the futon um, stabbed her, hence the blood coming out of her mouth, and then shot himself uh, right there and fell to the ground. Okay. <laughs> am, am I right or wrong? I have right? no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I watch a lot of crime shows. Um, New York. Well, okay, I put I only put this here because I I live here. I've been to a bunch of these places. What's the most fascinating places for you in New York City? <sighs> I mean, some of the ones that are really like that you are, are such a part of the fabric of the city, and you know that you've been past a million times and just didn't notice. Like uh, another kind of conceptual art piece. Do you know about the Times Square Hum? No. So Times Square Home? Hum. Hum. No. Hum. There's a, a a a piece of conceptual art it's a musical that is playing underneath one of the grates in Times Square. It emits this kind of low-level hum. It's been doing it since the 70s. Oh, my God. That's, that's great. You've walked over it a million times, and it's just there inviting you to stop for a second and put your ear to the grate and listen. You, you know, it's funny you mention that because you don't mention kind of one of the um, big things that people always surprise people with in when they visit New York is the um, area uh, in the... Um, under level of Grand Central. I knew where, you were going to say that. Yeah. yeah, I'm curious why you didn't put that one in there. Is it it could have been too common. Or uh, I, we kind of, I mean, we thought about that one. Uh, we thought a lot of people know about it. And okay, even though it's a great one, and everybody going through Grand Central should do that at least once. There's a parabolic sort of uh, whispering chamber. If you go to two opposite ends of one of the a little domed areas of Grand Central. Right outside the Oyster Bar. Right outside the Oyster Bar, you can whisper to somebody across the room. Which right, is, and they hear you, even though they're clear. far away, they never would hear the whisper. They can hear you through the wall, how the, how the acoustics go. Yeah, and look, if, if we were going to do a book dedicated to New York, of course that would be in there. But, uh, you know, we have three pages to cover the, the very best of New York, and we wanted to make sure that we were surprising even New Yorkers with things that they didn't know about. What about uh, L.A.? I, I'm going there in a few months. What should I What should I hit in L.A.? Well, I mean, uh, have you ever been to the Museum of Jurassic Technology? No. Well, that's got to be top of your list. What's, what is it? What is the Jurassic muse- Technology? Well, I, I actually almost don't want to tell you anything else. I want you to go to the museum and experience it for yourself. Okay. Um, it's one of the most unbelievable, eccentric, brilliant museums. Uh, it's a, almost a museum of the museum and about what museums are and about what, what wonder is and surprise. And you're, it's kind of everything in the museum is at this frontier between the real and the not quite real. And you're never quite sure what side of the, the line an item is, uh, an object is on. And I actually don't want to tell you anything All more right. about it because I want you to experience it. And then after you experience it, um, I want you to call me up and tell me what you think about it. All right, I will. And what, what's um? Is there any kind of like Hollywood esque things in L.A. that's sort of mysterious? Oh, so many. Um, well, there's the Museum of Death. That's a that's a, actually a bit of a well known one, but uh, and I haven't actually been to it yet myself. But it's a museum all about death, and in some cases, grisly death. And you know, one of the things uh, you'll notice a thread running through the book. There is like a slight morbid curiosity. To uh, to Atlas Obscura, we try and keep it kind of like uh, at a low level, you know. I mean, there could be a whole book of like morbidly curious things around the world, 
but the Museum of Death would definitely be in that book. So I'm trying to think, like in the next few months, I'm going to New Orleans, San Diego, LA, Phoenix, Miami, and then near Miami, Delray. Uh, I, I really want listeners to send me or through atlasobscura.com yeah. uh, obscure places send I should visit. Send them to you and then send them to us as well. All yeah. right. Well, no, then I'll rank high on uh, Atlas <laughs> Obscura. I'm going to get my ranking up there. Um, I mean, I, I'm really just fascinated again by the idea of uh, being an explorer in my life instead of, um, you know, just sitting there in my comfort zone every single day, like always trying to find the things that are uncomfortable. And I think this is a good starting point, like the, the places in your site and, and in this book. And I'm just wondering again more about the process of what is an exploration? Like for you, what what does an exploration entail? There's the mission, right? There, there's the uncomfortable situation and seeing where it can lead you. There's, you know, kind of finding your team, right? You know, to 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 help you, and maybe coming away changed at the end, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, if it's successful, you 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 your um, understanding of the world is hopefully changed in some way. Yeah, and then I suppose documenting it because you you probably understand a little bit more about how you've changed by documenting it along the way. So that was the other thing that I figured out on that trip around the country was when you have as your end goal to be able to not just have experienced this yourself, but told other people about it, that is an incredible um, sort of uh, force propelling you, right? Like, I got to go deeper because, like, I can't leave them there, right? I can't leave the story here. I got to, like, really, uh, I got to really push myself into this thing. Like, you know, it would be one thing to just go and visit Bob Jones University, that's not really such a great story. I got to go spend the night. I got to like do it under under the cover of being a transfer student, and like that's how I'm going to really get a great story out of this. That that's fascinating because it reminds me of uh, something um, when when Ryan Holiday was on the podcast for his book "Ego Is the Enemy." He described a martial arts instructor who taught was teaching about how to learn. So, which is a slightly di- similar but slightly tangential idea which is that to learn something, you need a plus equals minus. So plus is somebody who's better than you that you could learn from. Uh, equals is someone who you can compete with and ch- who challenges you. And minus is someone you can teach. And that's mm. how you learn something is by finding your plus equals minus. Mm. But in your case, to find a good exploration, a plus is some location that makes you uncomfortable or you're insanely curious about. And equals might be your team or how you get going on on one of these things and the minus um is this idea that you need to be able to tell a story to somebody so that's going to kind of inspire you to make the story interesting enough that you it's tellable yeah exactly and 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 knowing that at the end of the day like i've got to frame this in a way that's gonna, somebody's going to want to follow it and and be and come along for the ride uh, is is i think really helpful so so related to this is, you know, and kind of the ability to storytell, I think it's interesting to note, and I don't know if this comes up a lot in interview in interviews with you, but obviously your brother is uh, a best-selling novelist, like an incredible novelist, Jonathan Safran Foer, who many people have probably heard of or read their his books. Um, did you kind of get like a little bit of the art of storytelling from him? Did he get it from you? <laughs> like... How did how did that work growing up together? And and while while he was starting his amazing success with with novel writing, yeah, I, I, I he's very I, rare I, creature. I, I, by I, the I, way, I've got a, a third brother who's also a writer uh, who who um, writes about politics named, named and Franklin for he's a uh, with the New Republic. I he forget. was with the New Republic, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's 
I, honestly, I couldn't tell you where it comes from. Like, uh, like do you guys sit around the Thanksgiving table trying to up each other on the stories you're telling? No, that's the thing. We don't. And in fact, when we get together, we don't even really talk about writing. Uh, do you ever get jealous of each other? Oh, he just won the Pulitzer Prize, but I'm gonna be on the best show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are uh, uh, perhaps pathologically non-competitive with each other. Uh, in part, maybe because we kind of all do different things. You know, even though we're all writers, like Jonathan writes novels, Frank covers politics, I do this kind of weird science slash experiential stuff. Um, so we're all a little bit in our own kind of separate spaces. But do you think you've learned from each other a little bit? Like, what would you say you've oh, learned yeah. from? Have, I mean, you, you, have you read all of Jonathan's novels? Yeah, of course. And we read each other's works in in, in draft form. And um, they're my, my brother's... Besides, being my best friends are my best editors. So, what do you think you've learned from from Jonathan? And I, I only ask this because he really is like a, a sort of rare breed where he writes these incredibly incredibly literary novels that do also turn out to be bestsellers, which is not so easy to do. Uh, he's good at pointing out where I'm not being uh, funny enough, like in my writing, like you know, when I'm missing an opportunity to 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 tell a joke or to just up the up the humor a little bit. Like, like what's an example? If you could think of one. Yeah, I can't think of one right now, but, uh, you know, that's one of the things that uh, I think is so wonderful about his books is that they've got a great sense of humor. Mm. And uh, he's good at coaxing that out of out of my writing when, when he's when he's reading it. So, so Josh Foer, once again, thanks for coming on the podcast. Always uh, a pleasure. Moonwalking with Einstein was great. I'm so glad you came on, on to that podcast because not only did you describe the whole experience, you also helped listeners develop better memories and I, I recommend that book but Atlas Obscura this is like a guide to exploring like if you if it's almost any city or town or country in the world is is mentioned in this book and if you're living in any of these places it gives you even it even gave me I've been in New York forever all my life and uh, it gave me places just a few blocks from where I live to explore with my children so and they were fascinated and I was fascinated so what a great book what a great idea to contribute to the site and to learn from the site. Uh, thanks for, for coming on and for doing this book. Thank you. It's a pleasure. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you and it will only take 30 seconds or less and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less, and if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. At Capella University. You'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.